Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's latest Brexit outburst, the customs union, and what needs to be done to repair the country's intergenerational contract. I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor James Blitz, economics editor Chris Giles, political correspondent Laura Hughes, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. So another week and the Brexit stalemate goes on. Theresa May's cabinet failed again to meet and decide its preferred option for the UK's customs relationship with the EU after Brexit. The Prime Minister decided to split up her inner war cabinet into more subcommittees in order to try and find a compromise that can bring her government with her. And Boris Johnson, ever diplomatic, helped the situation by calling the Prime Minister's preferred solution crazy. James Blitz, so we haven't really moved on that much from the story last week. We've still got these two options on the table, which is Theresa May's new customs partnership and maximum facilitation, which is essentially doing as much as possible to reduce border infrastructure. The EU has said neither of these will fly, so we're still negotiating with ourselves. But again, another week has ticked by and still no movement. Yes, uh, to state the bleeding obvious, time is running out. <laughs> and um, because we are about 10 months toward the point of Brexit Day, March 2019, and this has been another really really frustrating period for Mrs May. As you say, what we saw at the start of this week was Boris Johnson and Greg Clark, the business secretary, both absolutely at loggerheads. It's really rare. You'll know this from your own experience of politics. Really rare to see two cabinet ministers absolutely diametrically opposed on a central issue of policy. Greg Clark basically publicly saying... Publicly as well. And publicly. That's exactly right. Publicly. On TV. In the Daily Mail. Greg Clark was basically saying the customs partnership is right. It's an extremely complicated system, but basically it means we see simulate membership of the customs union and collect tariffs on behalf of the EU. And then if goods that come into the UK don't then go onto the EU, a different tariff is paid. It's an extremely convoluted system. The Brexiters feel, and Boris Johnson feels, this is actually basically staying in the customs union as it is. It's basically going to leave us in the customs union forever. The Europeans think actually, technically, it doesn't work anyway. Nobody's ever tried to do this before. So Boris Johnson, as you say, was saying it's crazy. Greg Clark was saying it's what we need to do. And it is unresolved. But the bottom line is really that the entire Brexit project is somewhat impaled on this point, because Mrs May still faces this problem that if she can't get the customs partnership through, which does bring us closer to a customs union arrangement, Parliament may well vote against her on an impending customs union amendment. And so 
everything is at play with, with this issue. Absolutely. And I think Downing Street sort of sees it as imperative within the next month. They have to decide something because Parliament will decide on its behalf because it's generally thought that there was a majority for staying in a the customs union in the House of Commons. So Theresa May has to try and navigate her way through that. Laura, just to go back to what Jim was saying about Greg Clark and Boris Johnson, what Greg Clark said was not unexpected. He was backing the Prime Minister's proposal. He went on the Andrew Marr show and said, this is why it's the right thing for the country, the right thing for Brexit. We all need to get behind it. The surprising thing was then Boris Johnson popped up with an interview in the Daily Mail, which just said that the whole thing was crazy and it needs to be dropped. And yet... He wasn't sacked. He wasn't reprimanded. Life goes on as it did before. I was going to say it, it really wasn't actually that surprising for Theresa May to find one of her cabinet colleagues, Boris Johnson, coming out and publicly embarrassing her again in such a dramatic way. And ultimately, it's because Boris is not alone. We know that he has the support of Michael Gove, Liam Fox, David Davis. Liam Fox is particularly concerned about this customs arrangement and partnership. Well, it's his job on the line. Well, exactly, because he would argue and the Brexiteers would argue that he will be absolutely redundant if we stay in a customs union. There's an interesting idea that's been floating around this week, which sort of has progressed the conversation a little bit, which is that perhaps, so Nick Timothy suggested this, we could stay in the customs union for a little bit longer. So we've got our transition period. Now we could have an extra transition period for the customs union because we just don't have an answer at this stage. And you were talking about a vote in the House of Commons. And yes, that's coming up. But when is it coming up? It was meant to be this month. There are a lot of officials in Westminster who are increasingly frustrated that Julian Smith, the chief whip, keeps putting off these bills coming back to the Commons because there's no united policy with which the whips can vote up Tory MPs. It's all a bit of a disaster. Yes, because there's a huge amount of legislation that needs to get passed before Brexit Day. There's the withdrawal bill, there's a trade and customs bill, there's also an immigration bill that we've seen um, neither sight nor sound of, lost in the Home Office somewhere. And the government essentially just keeps pushing it back and back and back. And I guess their calculation is they want to move it as close as possible to October, which is really when the whole thing has to get bundled up. So there's not really much opportunity to amend or to go against it, because then you would be saying you're putting the whole deal on the line but it's not really great for our democracy in a way that this is you know the biggest change in 40 years and how the country's operated there's a lot of detail a lot of varying views in the house of commons on this and mps are essentially trying to be railroaded through this process by downing street yeah if you look at the business agenda for the next two weeks mps are debating plastic coffee cups and yes that's interesting but really the the most important issue of the day is being ignored because the government just doesn't know where it's going. There is no policy to vote for. There's no policy to whip up votes for. It's just absolutely Mm. extraordinary. It's also, I agree with you, and also there's one respect in which it's actually quite irresponsible because a lot of this legislation, you won't necessarily have to pass in full or that quickly if everything goes right on the night and we have an Article 50 deal and the transition to December 2020 is in place. But if we land up in a situation in the autumn where we have a crisis and it looks like we're heading towards no deal, 
a lot of this legislation really is needed to try and smooth things over for as best we can if we crash out and you would end up really with a legislative car crash around January, February 2019, trying to get this stuff through in double quick time. So there is an irresponsibility there and it adds to the deep sense of uncertainty among business. So what Theresa May has done to try and get some kind of compromise in her cabinet is to create even more subcommittees here on these two things. And it's a very odd way of doing this, James. I've certainly can't remember government operating like this before. So essentially for these two options, the maximum facilitation and the new customs partnership, there are groups looking into each of these led by essentially opponents of them. So you've got Liam Fox, who's looking into the customs partnership, and you've got Greg Clark and Karen Bradley to looking into maximum facilitation. The idea is the opponents to these can try and work through the issues. So when the cabinet does eventually come back together next week or the week after to decide there is some kind of consensus because of course we don't have votes on these things it's all trying to carry the room with us so essentially it's all just more delaying by Downing Street and not actually deciding. I've got to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've seen the stories overnight about what looks like a game show, it seems to me, that's being conducted between rival groups of cabinet ministers. It's the sort of thing you might have expected to see once upon a time on It's a Knockout. Well, you know, different, different cabinet ministers <laughs> lining up behind two different projects and to see which one of them can possibly tweak it so it gets across the line. I've simply no idea what that is about. There comes a point, I think, in political journalism when one does stand back and say they're stuck. <laughs> and that's what the problem is. For me, if I stand back and look at it, the central issue remains max fact, the maximum facilitation idea, which is basically the idea that you have a hard border, but you do everything possible to facilitate the flow of goods across it, is in many ways the most realistic outcome. I mean, from the point of view of business, it creates some concerns for companies in the motor industry, but at least it's something realistic and you can see it. The issue for Boris Johnson is he has got to explain to the cabinet and also to the wider public how this maximum facilitation is going to be agreed by the European Council. That, for me, seems to be the problem, because the British made a commitment that there would be absolutely no hard border at all between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and maximum facilitation, as Boris Johnson himself acknowledged some time ago, does involve some kind of granularity at the border. That seems to me to be the issue that they have to try and get over because customs partnership is very vague and magical but at least it promises something to Europe the max fact doesn't that's the bit I don't understand. I think I agree with that, actually, that if you look at, you know, Theresa May's vision for Brexit that was set out in Lancaster House and added to several times, maximum facilitation is really the only thing that sort of chimes with that in a way. And the only way you do something different is if you um, change that vision fundamentally. And the problem you've got, Laura, is that in December, when the first stages of the deal was set with the EU, as James said, it said no infrastructure. But the Conservative manifesto in last year's election said as frictionless as possible, which um, Brexit MPs are very keen to point this out. It says we'd never promised to the electorate there would be no infrastructure or whatever. It just it would be kept to a minimum. And the difference between those two is really where this problem lies. And also Ireland. Ireland are not going to be happy with the MaxFac option. The EU are not going to be happy. This is a return to a border. And you had John Major last night 
warning about the consequences for the peace deal. You know, this is actually a little bit more about economics and politics here. Sinn Féin actually run all the constituencies where the border is, which is another point that we're going to have to get around. I was in Ireland last week where we were being shown the border and how it works. And it's extraordinary because you can only tell that you've moved from Ireland to Northern Ireland by the change in the road signs. There is absolutely nothing there for very strong emotional reasons. And the idea of putting up any form of cameras or barriers by giving the people a, a sort of a reminder of the fact that these are two different places, it's a very emotive issue. And it's why it threatened to kind of scupper the whole deal last December. I think Boris Johnson can have a really difficult time convincing the EU that this is an option. The Irish are really serious about this and really strong. They do not want any form of infrastructure put up there again. James, in terms of the sort of cohesion of the cabinet over this, because coming back to the point about, you know, Boris Johnson, Greg Clark to take that, how sustainable do you think this is? Because obviously Theresa May brought her government together to essentially broker the divide in her party to have Remainers and Leavers and to try and get some kind of compromise on those issues. But there is a sort of sense this is all really coming to a head and you do wonder how it's going to play out. You know, David Davis, who is notionally in charge of Brexit, has been increasingly unhappy with how some of the negotiations have been going. Boris Johnson, we know, has been getting unhappy. But then on the other side, you've got people like Greg Clark, who, you know, if it doesn't go his way, is he going to stick around? Yes, there's no question we're heading towards um, the critical moment in the whole thing and there's a chance everything could get derailed. I suppose the key questions are these. Let us suppose that Mrs May decides she's going to stick with customs partnership or some version of it. What is Boris Johnson going to do? And what are the Brexiters more widely going to do? Are they going to walk out of Cabinet? Because if they do that, then that will prompt a full-scale political crisis in which everything will be up for grabs. Mrs May's future, the coherence of the government, perhaps Brexit itself. And let's face it, you know, they want Brexit to happen. Alternatively, my guess is this is what he's more likely to do. He'll say, well, I said customs partnership wasn't the thing. I said MaxFact was better. For the good of the country, given all the sort of other things that are going on in the world, I'm going to stay in my job. And what he will do then is Brexit will happen. She'll push customs partnership through. But then in late 2019, they'll decide they're going to get rid of Mrs May, or perhaps earlier than late 2019, immediately after we leave in March 2019. And then he will present himself as the champion of the real Brexit who was never properly listened to. My guess is that is what this is all about, the latter. But you may have a different view, Seb, or Laura as well. (laughs) But that's how I see it. No, I'm afraid I, I agree with you. I wonder what Boris Johnson's intentions are when he makes these big, grand, headline-grabbing comments. Is it about himself or is it about the good of the country? And I fear perhaps this might be about himself and his own career. It is It's a bit of a mess. And, and one thing we haven't mentioned is the EU withdrawal bill, which has to return to the Commons at some point. Again, we don't know when. And the, the government have been defeated by the House of Lords 14 times. There are 14 big juicy amendments that have to come back to the Commons and be voted on. And again, that's just going to throw up a whole new set of problems for Theresa May. Well, just on that amendment point, obviously, you know, the government's in a complete mess all over this. The Labour Party's in not much of a better place either. That There was a huge rebellion in the Lords this week, Laura, when they put an amendment on to essentially keep Britain in the EEA, which is 
you know, quite frankly, where most Labour MPs are in their heart of hearts and either are worried about their Leave voting constituencies or are worried about momentum, the leadership, what have you. But it's going to be a very tricky moment because that amendment's going to come back to the House of Commons and Labour MPs are either going to have to vote to remove it, i.e. actively voting to take us out of the single market, or they're going to have to rebel. There's been a bit of question mark in, in Westminster this week. Would Labour do a dramatic U-turn, change its position, which seems quite unlikely given what the leadership has said. But it does show again that everyone is just so divided on all this. It's unlikely, but I remember when we were you know, speculating on whether or not they'd come out in favour of a customs union, which they did, which completely tipped the scales against Theresa May and in favour of the pro-European Tory MPs. So you just don't know. Chukra Muna is working with Anna Subri and others all the time on this. There are conversations going on. There is pressure on the Labour leadership. I personally don't think they'll go as far as the EEA. I think Customs Union was as far as they're going to go on this one, but you just never know. I mean, the issue for Corbyn, Corbyn has to consider two things. On the one hand, the difficulty for him in backing EEA is it means that we accept, that Labour accept free movement of people. And that is really almost impossible for any political leader in the UK because it basically goes against what was the essential spirit of the referendum decision. And it makes the UK a rule taker as well. And a rule taker. So it is a very difficult line. On the other hand, if you look at it from Corbyn's view strategically, he wants to draw the line under Brexit. He wants the entire story in the UK to move on. He's never wanted to raise Brexit. He raised in Prime Minister's questions this week. It was an open goal for him. But he wants to move on to the what he sees as the wider issues of income inequality, um, social injustice in the UK, where he is actually much better pitched. That's where his whole base is. If he were to say EEA... We would effectively in the UK draw a line under the entire Brexit issue for the next 10 or 15 years because we would default to an off-the-shelf solution, free movement, single market, customs union, and life would go on. And then Corbyn could get on to what he really wants to talk about. So I think that's the issue for him. My gut feeling like yours is he won't do it. But as you rightly said, we didn't think he'd go for customs union. And where we will be in a few weeks' time, unclear. The UK's social contract with some of its citizens is breaking down. That old idea that you worked hard, pay taxes and in return got a safety net, pension and social care no longer seems to hold. People can't buy properties anymore, but is it because they're wasting all their money on avocados? A fascinating new report out from the Resolution Foundation this week examined these problems and said it wasn't avocados, but put forward some radical suggestions to fix intergenerational fairness. Chris Giles, you've written and opined on this report, which has created a lot of debate this week, mostly around this idea of a £10,000 bung to be given to 25-year-olds to help them buy a house or pay off their debt. What do you make of the report and of the £10,000 idea? I think the report is very good on its diagnosis that there is a problem. It's a problem for people who were essentially born after about the mid to late 1970s. Uh, The problem is particularly acute because most of the working life has been in a time of extreme economic pain and low wage growth. And then they've also not only been hit by low wages, but particularly in London and the southeast by very, very high house prices or housing costs is rents as well. It's not just house prices. So the problem for the younger generation is if you do everything your parents and your school tells you to do, you get a good education, you get a good degree, you go to London and you work, 
you can get a good job but you can't afford housing. If you go outside London to work, you can't get great pay. And again, you can't afford housing, so you're a bit stuffed either way. That's the general issue. You're the first generation that has faced this problem. I say I say you, looking at you. Uh, but I mean, It is my generation, is generation, to be fair. But uh, I, He's not looking at me. I'm a bit insulted. <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're the same generation. We are, now, Chris. So, uh, and it's not just about housing, Chris. It's also about things like pensions as well. And it's so, also about job security. So you can go through the list. So that pay is the first generation to be paid less than the previous people about 15 years older than themselves. Housing, lower home ownership, higher house costs. So whether you're renting or owning pensions, there are more people in pension funds, but their likely retirement income is lower and less secure. And you can go on and on and on. And it's not only the young generation it, it is to say that everyone in the older generation is having a great time. That's not true either. The older people are very fearful of particularly health and social care costs. So we've got a, just a general problem in society. And that's the end of the diagnosis part of the report. It's a very big report, lots and lots of charts, etc. Very well done done. Then we come on to the supposed solutions. And as ever with these things, we diagnose what is a huge social problem. You find that solutions may be not quite up to it. So I think the £10,000 bung, as you called it, uh, would be quite important to a lot of people, but it's probably almost certainly not going to solve the problems they face. And so it could be seen as a bit of a gimmick. It's sort of like, what else? We can't really think of lots of other things. So how about 10,000 quid? There are some quite sensible things on inheritance tax, how to make that fairer. There's also other ideas on a property tax. But I find that really rather problematic in that particularly where it'd bite its hardest is in London and the southeast, where property values are very, very high. But the fundamental aspect of taxation, if you tax something, you don't make it cheaper. So it's not actually going to make it easier for younger people to afford homes. Miranda Green, the, the question with all this is, is this generation, my generation, millennials, people in their 20s and 30s, are they really much worse off than other generations? That obviously there's a lot of issues here, but every generation has their challenges as well. That's true. I think Chris is absolutely right to say and to have pointed out in his column this week that the older generations have their own very real fears about what is being provided for them financially and in terms of care. But there is a feeling that actually the millennial generation is in a harsher environment in various ways, which Chris has enumerated. And there is something to that. I think that in the UK, you know, the dysfunction of the housing market and the shortage of affordable housing is now such an extreme break on all sorts of people's personal ambitions, on their options. It's a break on social mobility because it's a break on geographical mobility as well. And really, you know, Chris was saying earlier in the week that the solutions that they offered on housing were possibly the least satisfactory in the resolution uh, report. But that's actually probably the most pressing public policy dilemma, how you free people up to move around the country to take advantage of opportunities. I do agree with Chris on the bung. I think it's probably not a great idea, not least because actually you need to be solving the problems of the 50% of young people who don't go to university earlier in the track. You need to be solving the options that are available at 18 to 19 to give people a more prosperous future. But yeah, I think this generational argument is very real. And as you and I know, Seb, it has real political repercussions in terms of voting patterns, as we found in 2017.
So I was going to come on to that because this is an interesting thing, Chris, that generally the calculation of political parties, Conservative and Labour, more broadly the Conservatives, though, was that it's older people who actually turn up to vote. So therefore, you have to, you know, win them over. And a great example of that is the pensions triple lock, which is a policy that I think most people think is very expensive, is probably too generous and not the best use of the state funds. Yet it's been held by all the political parties because they know if they get rid of it, then it's going to impact them quite badly but last year's general election away was the first time of this youthquake quote-unquote which may or may not exist we'll come on to that in a moment but that did signify politicians might have to think about younger voters as much as older voters yeah certainly if you go back to 2015 the older voter aspect played out entirely as the conservatives thought the triple lot was very popular older people went out to vote younger people generally didn't and it worked very well for the conservatives it didn't so much in 2017 and it might well be not so much because of a youth quake but it's a sort of almost a middle-aged quake because if you think about who the millennials are in the general standard definition it starts at 1980 when you're born these people are now 38 they're not exactly you know spring chickens anymore and they're pretty much in the middle-aged child-rearing part of their lives and if the Conservatives have got a real problem is the fact that they were finding that people were voting against them who were under 40, that, that, that the cut-off point of where people started to vote Conservative was older and older and older. And if that's going to be an age thing, that every election it creeps up by five years because people younger than that don't feel the Conservatives are on their side, they've got a mighty problem. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And actually, I have to say, when I had my first child, one of the women that I met, the other new mothers, said something incredibly significant to me I thought which was that until I had a child I didn't realise what the state was there for you know and actually that feeling that people has as they move up through their life experiences and they need to call on more and more things from the kind of social infrastructure that definitely affects the way that people vote and so if people feel hard done by as they get into those older age groups and are more likely to vote that's a huge problem for the Conservatives we shouldn't by the way forget that the disastrous moment in last year's general election was when the Tory manifesto proposed a very sort of personally expensive on families solution to the great social care conundrum which came to be known as the dementia tax and was probably the moment when when the election kind of slipped the majority I should say slipped away from Theresa May's grasp so you can't go around ignoring the grey vote because they're still enormously powerful as a voting bloc and I think that social care thing was interesting Chris because it was the first time that a big political party said right we're going to try and tackle this head on and essentially penalise the grey vote to a certain extent but the proposals were quite half-baked they were in some ways they were too detailed and not detailed enough in other ways and it was quickly labelled the dementia tax because it was seemed to be targeted older people and Theresa May very embarrassingly had to U-turn and essentially the whole thing is now back in that box of just too difficult too toxic to solve and you do wonder if anything is going to be tackled because a lot of things in the Resolution Foundation report are about you know how to get more money into social care through taxation or through property taxes as well. Yeah, we sort of actually know how to solve the social care problem. I think we've known it for quite a while from the Dilnot report onwards that the reason that the cap is so important is because it's not an intergenerational thing, it's a within-generational thing. It's If you are unlucky enough to have extremely high social care bills, which you don't know, and it's probably nothing to do with any action you've taken in your life, it's just a luck thing, you get dementia and you need a huge amount of care in your very old age, then that can be ruinous financially. 
but not many people actually need that amount of money spent. So it's an obvious thing that society and somehow should find a way of having some insurance, probably through the state, because of not something that lends itself to private insurance. And this is the why there's an idea of a cap. And this is why Theresa May was so, because about to say stupid, but so misguided in deciding to drop that cap initially in the manifesto and then having to U-turn and say nothing has changed and it was all very, very embarrassing for her because that is the thing that is the mechanism through which uh, we can ensure that within a generation the people who are unlucky get social care and their bills are capped. And that's why the, where the Resolution Foundation report is rather good because they're saying the people who should pay for that are the generation themselves and that should come through some form of either some form of greater inheritance tax and capital tax on older people or from paying some more taxes on the incomes that they earned and in particular national insurance which people pensioners don't pay at the moment it's a within generational issue not with between generations and that is the sensible way of doing it Miranda it strikes me that the two immediate things that we've said that need to be done one is the housing thing and just build mm. more houses and Sanjay Javid when he was at the Ministry for Housing had a lot of proposals to try and unblock the housing markets ever since the crash there's a big lack of small and medium sized builders houses weren't getting built in the right place We'll see under James Brokenshire, who is a uh, a less energetic minister, shall we say, than Mr Javid, whether that gets taken forward. The other key issue, though, I think that the government is looking into is student loans, and in particular, the interest rate being paid on that, because that's felt as a kind of key example of something that is penalising my generation as these huge loans, is paying all this interest, and it's something that the education department is probably going to look at changing, if I'm right. Well, there's a huge um, review going on, which will make its kind of interim findings known by the end of this year uh, into the entire subject of higher education finance and higher education structures and indeed all post-19 financing. And it's very likely that they will look at that interest rate because if you've got an interest rate above 6%, it's punitive on those that are paying. The reason I say on those that are paying is because it was actually deliberately set up like this to be redistributive and to be extremely progressive. Once you actually lower that interest rate, you're not quite hitting families that can afford it or graduates who can afford it in quite the same way. Um, But yeah, it is one of the things that's seen as a great injustice. There is, of course, a lot of misinformation, however, about student finance. And I was delighted to see Martin Lewis of Money Saving Expert, who often writes for us at the FT, actually have a real go at a Labour politician on Question Time the other night, who tried to sort of feign ignorance of how the system works. And once again, try and give people the idea that it's some sort of upfront fee, which it is not. You know, it's a sort of additional graduate contribution. So... The mess that is student finance and the general understanding of it goes back and can be laid at the doors of politicians since the early 2000s. But it leaves the Tory party who are in government at the moment with a problem. You're right. They have to somehow diffuse some of the anger about student finance because that level of debt makes this generation, the millennials, feel particularly hard done by, even those who aren't actually going to ever pay it off. And finally, Chris, I know one of the things in the report that you're not so much a big fan of is the idea of a property tax, that we know council tax, which is paid for to your local council on where you rent or where you live, is not particularly a good tax, but what they've proposed you don't think is necessarily the best idea. No, I, I mean, part of it is because they are very critical of council tax being regressive. So people with higher value properties pay a lower proportion of the value of their property in tax than people with lower value properties. Um, 
I would make two points. One is that whether your tax system is regressive or progressive is more important than whether any individual tax is. It's the system that matters, not the individual tax. But also when it comes to a property tax, if you want it to be seen by the public as, in some sense, fair, you've got to distinguish between various elements of what it is when people own a property. Do they have a lot of equity in their property because they were lucky, they've owned it for a very long time when house prices rose and that was nothing to do with them? Did they save very hard and forego a lot of consumption to be able to buy this property? And did they borrow a huge amount of money? And those three things, if you tax them all as one lump sum, which is the only way you could do it, and it's a really quite a high property tax, which is what is suggested, I think people would see it as a sort of illegitimate tax, just as bad as the poll tax. Yeah, I think it's very thorny territory. I mean, good luck to the generation of politicians, for example, that decides we've got to recalculate and reband the council tax bills because it's long of course, overdue. Well, we are all getting council tax bills that are way too low because I think the last valuation was back in the 1990s. But that really would be taking on the electorate to revalue property at this point. Well, we'll see if any politicians listen to this and do anything about intergenerational fairness. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Chris, Miranda, James and Laura for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. The inexorable rise of China. The changing nature of work. The future of liberal capitalism the power of Silicon Valley, the world of artificial intelligence. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant questions of our age in a new podcast, The FT Big Picture. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.